Ortho Laser Orthopedic Laser Centers is proud to sponsor the Ortho Show podcast. Ortho Laser Orthopedic Laser Centers is killing it right now. We have six centers open with two more opening in the next eight weeks with 10 more sites in the queue across the country. We're exclusively powered by the MLS M8 laser technology. Laser treatment is an awesome alternative to traditional cortisone shots and surgery for all of your acute and chronic orthopedic pain needs for your patients. To find out how you can supercharge your orthopedic practice and become a part of the OrthoLaser community, go to the OrthoLaser website at www.ortholaserwithaz.com. That's www.ortholaserwithaz.com. From Medical Media, this is The Ortho Show. Okay, hello world, Dr. Scott Sigmund. Now, normally we all know I like to lead in that I usually say that I am your favorite opioid-sparing orthopedic surgeon. Uh, For today's episode, we may have a little challenge there as we have uh, uh, a a close friend of mine and who's a, a real leader within the opioid sparing world amongst many other things. But we're very pleased to have Dr. Paul Sethi on today, who's a sports medicine orthopedic surgeon. Uh, He practices at the orthopedic uh, and neurosurgery specialist in Greenwich, Connecticut. Uh, We know he's a a brilliant man because he did the same fellowship as I did at Curlin Job uh, in 2003. He's also president of the ONS Foundation. We'll talk a little bit about that as we get going. But Paul, we want to welcome you to the show. We really appreciate you taking the time out. Thanks, Scott. I'm really glad to be on the show today. I've, uh, I've enjoyed listening to all the upper, other episodes just as well. Yeah, it's fantastic. So, so you know, one of the things that, that you and I really share, and, and we've been very early adopters and leaders uh, in the medical community in trying to change the, the post-operative uh, paradigm on, on pain management, and that's opioid sparing. So, I mean, I think the audience would love to hear why you're so passionate about it and really how you, how you got into this. Well, I, I appreciate that leading, and Scott, you have been sort of a, a co-champion, if not if not real champion of this. And I think I got into it because uh, I was ignorant to the problem. I got really tired of, of reading the newspaper day after day and reading about more youth deaths and, and more opiate issues and, and clinics opening up across the country and doing the wrong thing. And I said to myself, well, who on earth does that? I just didn't understand. And, and it was almost a, a level of ignorance. As it turns out, one of our colleagues, a woman named Laura Wynn, who worked in the industry at that time, said, hey, listen, do you know that there are medications you can use to to avoid opiates in certain cases? And I said, oh, yeah, well, you know, that's not me. As it turns out, it, it was me. And, and my patients were taking a lot more than they needed to. So in, in a nice way, we had the, the pharma industry bring me an idea and enhance my awareness of my own practice patterns. I mean, really, Scott, I'd ask you, who taught you how to prescribe the number of opiates after surgery. Yeah, I mean, we, it, it was just it was just handed down to us through residency. I mean, I remember at Curl and Job, we'd be writing those scripts left and right. I mean, that's that was what the standard of care was, just opioids and make sure you give enough of them so that nobody gets called over the weekend. Uh, we really were not aware, or at least I was not taught in, in, my, in my medical school curriculum, my fellowship, my residency, about the true addictive potential of opioids. And so we all got schnookered. We all were just doing it. I mean, that's all I can remember. Shoot, you know, I remember the anesthesiologist lecture that pain is the fifth vital sign, right? And, and that's what I believed. If you undertreat pain, you're doing the wrong thing by the patient because these medications 
in the acute post-op period are not addictive. That was the, that was the gospel, right? And they were cheap. You got to use them because they're inexpensive, right? They're five bucks a pill or less. And, you know, great shout out to Lara Wynn, the bat woman, I like to call her. She is, uh, <laughs> she is always there to, to, to rescue. She's got just an amazing ability to communicate. She's got the best, best black book of the business. And she's really much, such an amazing influencer behind the scenes for, for all of us. She's been amazing. So it was a wake-up call, and honestly, it has been an amazing wake-up call because we've reduced our opiate consumption, at least in my in my microorganization, by you know probably seventy percent. Scott, I remember I gave this I gave a lecture on this at uh, the AOSSM, and one of the guys, a really well-respected surgeon, said, "Paul, you know, you sound like a televangelist," and I was like, "Well, I'm telling you, this is actually this is going to be relevant for you." Uh, it, you know, it, it's so funny. I mean. It took a long time and we started first giving these talks and trying to influence people. The rooms were empty and, but we just kept chipping away at it. And, uh, and now, you know, it, it, look, I still have a, you know, there's still people in my community that write a prescription for 60 narcotic pills. I mean, it's crazy for a rotator cuff. I mean, I can't even imagine that, but what I always like to say, and you tell me what you think, Paul, but I think it was like the most liberating thing I've ever done in practice. Forget about saving lives and, and, and money for the system and all of that. But for me as a, as a practicing orthopedic surgeon to go opioid sparing, we don't write refills. We don't get calls anymore. It's like that whole aspect of, of pain management has moved outside of my practice. You know, it, it really is. It, it's fantastic. It is liberating. Patients are so engaged and so happy. And all the youth athletes that we take care of, their parents are so happy for us to not go down that pathway. So it, it, it's amazing. The, the greatest resistance came from within, within our own behavior patterns, which, by the way, were never evidence-based. They're all just, just like you said, handed down. How many did you give? Through? I don't know. I gave 60 because that's what my chief resident told me to do. Exactly. I mean, there was no rhyme or reason. And it wasn't like, you know, look, there are some bad players out out there, right, who were, who were you know, pill, pill machines and things. But at the end of the day, most of us were just, we were just doing what we were taught that had been handed down to us. And we were all fooled by the entire system. I agree. I agree. So one of the things that we also shared in this, and, and you, I was involved in the Choices Matter Plan Against Pain campaign, and I was able to tool around with Gabby Reese, who's awesome, you know, the original Wonder Woman. And you had an amazing opportunity to spend some time with, with Grant Hill. So I, I know that the audience would love to hear about that. Tell us about that, Paul. So uh, it, was, it was amazing. And, and Grant is just an amazing guy. The poor guy's had you know, over a dozen surgeries. Uh, still is going to be an NBA Hall of Famer, one of the greatest players on the court, but a gentleman and a good dude and just so easy to talk to. But he got it. He's like, look, I don't, I didn't need to be jacked up on all this medicine after all these surgeries, and and he got on board and sort of adds a lot of credence. You know, Scott, when you and I get on our get on our soapbox and say, look, don't take these pills, you don't need them, that's great. But then when a role model, you know, one of the best NBA players of all time, gets up there and says, look, I've had surgery. In fact, I've had over a dozen surgeries, and I've had what people thought were career-ending surgeries. Well, th- then it really it really hit ho- hits home. What's amazing though it is is his dad, Grant Hill, Grant Hill's dad, um, played football at Yale. And when I was a resident, he came up and gave us a lecture. And he told us about what it was like to be an NFL player when he was there. He's like, look, they would just jack us up with cortisone or whatever it may be. And he really woke me up. Uh, his dad woke me up to some of this. So it really brought the, the whole circle of life uh, just spinning back into me. That's awesome. Did you guys, so you guys did the same thing, right? You did like live TV, did recorded TV, satellite media transmissions. What Was there one that sort of sticks out for you that was a lot of fun that you can remember? 
No, all of them sucked because I was nervous and not good at them. And he was a pro. <laughs> and, I love it. And this guy's a consummate pro. So, no, I was nervous. I had dry mouth. I blinked too many times. I mean, the producer was like, oh, my gosh, Paul, do you need to see a psychiatrist? Do you need medicine? So, <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. We, uh, <laughs> Gabby and I flew out to, to Los Angeles and we did the doctor show, right? And I get there and I got this whole thing that I'm going to do. And they they say to me, oh, no, 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 you, you can't do that. You know, you're going to have to use these exact two paragraphs to be able to get your message across. So I'm in the freaking green room and I'm like, like an actor trying to memorize my lines before I go out. I'm like, man, this is not, this is not what I signed up for. I want to just tell my story, you know? Oh, that's I so mean, it, sh- it should have shook out as this is Dr. Scott Sigmund. This is Gabby Reese. Uh, Scott, you're done. <laughs> yeah, it, right? we don't want to hear from you we just want to hear from gabby exactly oh that that's great so you know it's so frustrating right so we're on this path we're trying to make a difference we're using all these new medications that we use one of which that we use together or, or in common in practice is liposomal bupivacaine it's also known as Xperel. and i like to tell the world it's sort of like black licorice and the grateful dead you know you either love it or you hate it and there's like no in between and and so when I give my talks, I always quote one of your studies, and I put it up next to uh, to Namdari's study. And so your study was was pu- you know published in the in the Journal of Shoulder and Elbow Surgery. It was for rotator cuff surgery was with, with a block, uh, with or without uh, the use of local infiltration of the, of the anesthetic. And then Namdari did the same thing, or Namdari did the same thing, but his was a ropivacaine, whatever. I don't want to get too deep into it. But he showed that the patients that had the Xperel had the use of more narcotics compared to, and his studies published in JBJS, yours is published in JSES, two incredibly reputable journals, two reputable doctors who come out with completely different you know, results after doing a study. Tell me what you think about that, because I've, I've always had a hard time swallowing that. So I, actually, I called Serena Nemdari because he is sort of of rising stars in the United States for shoulder surgery. He is risen in star. He's already the director of, of shoulder research at Rothman, and, and he's the real deal. But if you just sort of put a, micro, a lens on it, he's telling the truth. That's exactly what he saw, and I'm telling the truth. But the technique and the methodology, it's sort of the devil's in the details. Scott, if someone just had an ACL surgery, right? And one person did really well, and the other person went on to re-rupture, tear the meniscus, get a transplant, and never go back to sports. You don't just throw out ACL. You say, well, hang on a second. How was it done? What are the nuances? Did you, did you use an entire multimodal approach? Did you engage your patient educationally? So it's not just you know throw this thing at the wall and see if it sticks. It's have a thoughtful, comprehensive approach, and the technique to doing it being even better. I mean, what really makes me feel much better is we, we, we've got two other studies that are just about to be published where we've switched over to using a block, right? We, we have this great medicine. We weren't allowed to use it for a block initially, a nerve block, that is. And now we're allowed to use it for a nerve block. And honestly, um, all, all conflicts aside, which, you know, for the record, I'm conflicted. I work with the, with, with the expert people. This stuff works really, really well. You know, I had shoulder shoulder surgery, and I didn't even feel it. I mean, I thought it was nothing. Two days later, I was trying to go back to work, and I got yelled at by my doctor. Yeah, I mean, so that's a, it's a wonderful point, and for the audience out there that are doctors, so so we have this anesthetic that we would inject into the surgical site, and it took a while for the FDA to approve it, but you can now use it for a nerve block, so we can numb up the entire arm prior to surgery, and it can last for up to two to three days. And so, one of my favorite sayings is that you know when I talk to my patients now, they seek me out because of the techniques we do. Is that I say, you know, 
rotator cuff surgery doesn't have to suck anymore. And so most of our patients, probably 95% or more of patients undergoing rotator cuff surgery require no opioids in their post-operative setting, which is really amazing. And just correct me if I'm wrong, Paul, but but hasn't uh, Namdari now switched over to, to using scaling blocks and liposomal bupivacaine for his patients? I mean, I'm so excited to be able to correct you when you're wrong because that doesn't happen so much. <laughs> uh, That's okay. So but, maybe not, huh? No, no, no. He is. He, he absolutely look. He absolutely is. The guys down there believe in it. I think that they just you know, look. You have to ask questions. You have to sort of dissect apart, and and it's good to have some dissenting opinion. And Scott probably, you know, this is sort of one of the funny policy games. Probably one of the reasons it got into JBJS is because it was a negative study. It was an anti sort of newfangled uh, idea. So it becomes politically attractive for for certain certain types of reviewers. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great point. But you know, I think it's awesome to be able to talk to to the people directly involved because it's always been something that I've been conflicted by. So it's great to hear. And the most important thing, and I think we all agree, you know, you and I sat on a surgical advisory board for the ACL too, and developing a protocol that would be cookie cutter, so that all doctors would be able to follow the same process and be able to have similar results. And I think technique driven, as you talked about, is so important to be able to have successful outcomes uh, to make sure that we're all doing it the same way with the standard of care. I mean, that's it. You know, as surgeons, we don't want to follow the sort of a manifesto or the pilot's checklist. But the truth is, we really do. You, whether you say it out loud or you do it in your brain. I mean, think about how methodical you are in everything that you do in your approach. From the moment you, you position the patient at surgery to the very last part of the dressing, it follows a protocol. That's a great analogy for sure. Uh, the pilot theory for sure. We use that routinely as well. So look, I'm, I want to I want to switch gears a little bit because there's a couple of things that you've done, which you've done really well. And uh, we've got some you know unique listeners. We've got young orthopedists and we've got some older ones and a bunch of mixed uh, uh, group out there as well that are listening. But one of the things that you did really well, which I can't say that I have, is, is medical device design, uh, patents and royalties. I mean, I can tell you I've got two patents but uh, they're collecting dust on the wall. <laughs> I don't anticipate uh, any actual movement on those devices anytime soon, but I know you've had success with that. I'd love to hear that story. So uh, it started out with, first of all, a lot of luck and perhaps being in the right time. But I, I, I'm always thinking about why we do a certain procedure and why we do it a certain way and, and the consequences of it and, and how patients recover from it. So I had a distal biceps repair that I had to do, and I went back and I reread everything, and I sort of saw how I was going to fix it, and I read that I was going to put him in a splint and a sling and slowly ratchet him out over six weeks. And then I went and did an ACL surgery just before, and I'm like, wait a minute, I'm going to allow a person to put their body weight on an ACL, but I can't allow someone to move their arm after a distal biceps repair. So that struck me as there's something I'm doing, there's something wrong with this. So I set out to devise a way that make it strong enough to to re- resist early motion and that was really easy to figure out you just you take a human arm and you figure out how much it takes or how much it weighs to move the arm back and forth that's like 50 newtons so all i had to do was come up with a way that was stronger than 50 newtons which is a really low-hanging fruit came up with an idea i presented it to the team and they sort of said that's great no one will ever do it and they sent me away so i went back to the drawing board sort of that's cla- and I- classic by the way you know innovation always has more failure than it does success. So that's a recurrent theme on the show for sure. So keep going. They sent me away and they they said, well, that's great. No one will ever listen to you. And also there's no, no, no use for this kind of thing. So I went back and this time I said, you know what, I'm going to get a little more proof. And I got into the biomechanics lab and I said, okay, I'm going to prove how strong this idea is. And I proved it out to be, you know, 300 newtons. So five times stronger than it needed to be. 
And I went back, um, and this time I presented to the team, and uh, as I go around the room, the first head is nodding no again, the second head is nodding no again, the third head is nodding no, and the fourth head is the boss. He's like, I love it, let's go. And then everyone else started nodding their heads, so that was a great idea. <laughs> yeah, and I, know who was, I don't know all the players in the room, but I know the one that made the decision, so yeah. uh, and, not surprised. It was great. I mean, it's been great, you know, and it, because of sort of a fortuitous leap, I then had the opportunity to just discuss and meet with engineers and talk about the process. And once you do it, it's fun. And once you start to, to get good at it, it's not as hard. So uh, and you're encouraged, you know, one one lucky success. And let me be honest with you, it's definitely a lucky success. But one lucky success then allowed me to build upon others. Um, and I love the idea of rethinking and re-understanding and retooling surgery uh, because if we can make small incremental changes and make them better instead of these big C changes, it, it can make a difference. Yeah, one of our our great mentors was incredibly good at that, Doctor Job. Right? He, you know, you literally while you're there, you hear the story. He went into the basement and came up with an operation to fix Tommy John. It's the one of the most you know common operations for baseball pitchers at this point, but uh, it didn't exist before Doctor Job went down and figured it out. So that that process of innovation, I think, you know, runs through Curl and Job strong. I think uh, there's a lot of us that have that that same concept. But kudos to you for for sticking it out and and really making it work and and, and you know, having that innovation and be able to change, even the smallest things can make such a big difference. It doesn't have to be monumental change. It could just be, like you said, taking the idea from one operation and then moving it to another operation, maybe just the trigger to get you over the hump. So also a great story. So one of the other things I want to pivot again now that you've been involved in early on, which seems to be really gaining a lot of traction across the country right now, is private equity investment into orthopedic practices. So if I'm not mistaken, I hope, I hope I'm not wrong again, but I do believe that you've been through the process. And I know that there's a lot of listeners out there that would love to hear your take on why you did it and it's been successful for you. Just give us a little bit of a run through about that. Absolutely. Look, this is a, this is a long discussion um, and has many, many nuances. But in short, we looked at our organization here, here the ONS group at Greenwich. We said, gosh, you know what? We're trying really hard. We're we're able to care for patients really well, and we think that this model of care that, that we have here can actually be scaled, made larger. Um, we have processes in place, and we have internal review and, and research, and we said, look, is this is an exciting idea? And as the world of medicine contracts, and many of us find that, look, there's the big hospital system that you can join, uh, or alternatively, you're going to have to join a large multi-specialty practice. And and that's not necessarily the most patient-centric feeling. So we wanted to create an atmosphere where it was all about musculoskeletal care. And, and how do you do this? And how can you make it larger? And how can we scale, scale this? Well, as it turns out, there are, just like any other business, if I opened my own bagel store or bagel store or burger store and I was good at it, you know, there is a whole world of business where private equity will say to you, yeah, you know what? You're right. Your idea is good. We're going to help you enlarge it. And that was the principle. We have a good idea for musculoskeletal care. We want to keep it patient-centric. We don't want to necessarily be part of a big hospital or a, or a multi-centric group, which would lose the focus on musculoskeletal. And then so, that's why we did it. Yeah. So in order to be successful, from what my understanding, and I'd love to hear it from you as well, there has to be sort of a growth potential or a process of, of moving your ideas, which work well, and being able to incorporate them into either a larger group or additional groups or additional revenue sources. How, how does that play out? So you're exactly right. I mean, and, and we chose, we looked at the opportunity of expanding and saying, listen, we're going we're gonna to get larger in a larger geography. Uh, we'll expand and we'll expand sort of contiguously, meaning within sort of 
our direct route of, of Highway 95 or whatever it may be. And also non-contiguously looking at the opportunity in other states and other locales where we can say that what are the processes that we have that are efficient to grow. Uh, so expanding and getting larger is, Scott, exactly right, you know, one of the major premises um, of that. It's not necessarily about sort of tightening the nuts and bolts in this one operation and trying to trying to squeeze more blood from stone. You know, that's not the sort of organization that we would have partnered with. And our, and our partner is a, a group called Kohlberg. You know, look, there's all sorts of worry and concern that you join with private equity firms and all of a sudden everything's going to change. I can tell you, more than a year into it, the day-to-day -day practice of seeing patients has not changed. Our quality has not changed. Uh, in fact, we probably have greater superstructure. And when COVID hit, God, we had amazing business advisors who were our partners to get us through this. Um, and when the times got tough during COVID, because many of us weren't working, our, our business partners said, listen, we understand. Hang tight. You know, we, we're here to support you, which is the opposite of, of what, you know, many people had sort of been fearful or warned about with with private equity and yeah I, i'm going to track that up to we we had the right partners are you are you playing an active role in that business expansion or are you tend spending more time still on clinical practice so i no, i just you know there's 24 hours in a day normally so now i've got 27 or 28 hours in my day uh and i'm actively involved in it uh because it's it's in my interest to try to help identify other practices and other surgeons who may have a common interest. And that's it, right? We want to find other groups who are like-minded, who have the desire to stay independent of a hospital system, to stay musculoskeletally, orthopedically focused and, and drive patient-centric care. And we can do it. You know, one of the things, one of the sort of undercurrents is that as joint replacement starts to move to an outpatient procedure, we're able to do things for, for more efficiently and less expensively than a big hospital. And that's not because the hospital is bad, but the hospital has to have an ICU. They have to have a cardiac care unit. They have to have a transplant unit. They have to have a pediatrics floor. So their costs are just inherently greater than, than what we'd be able to do in a nimble orthopedic-only practice. So this may represent healthcare savings for America. Yeah, no, that's interesting. So, so tell us about what what are the options for expansion of business? Obviously, you can you can grab or not grab, but you you merge with additional practices. There's designated health services such as physical therapy or imaging that sort of thing. But what are your targets as far as your growth is concerned? So there, there's two distinct pathways, and I don't think they're mutually exclusive. One is continued organic growth, meaning hiring and identifying the best people at a fellowship who are going to be motivated to deliver the highest level of care. So organic growth, continuing to grow within our own footprint. And then the second, sort of inorganic or, or sort of partnership growth, where we identify another group and say, look, you know what? This other group has the same vision as us, and, and together we're, we have synergy. Um, if the other group doesn't have some of the things like a surgery center or a physical therapy, uh, we can help them to install those things uh, in their own organizations. And if they do, we can just be synergistic. But once again, putting together, uh, putting together two great minds, it's not really about sort of folding into one organization. Quite the opposite. I think that we want to learn from everybody and get better as a team. So one of the other things I hear a lot about with private equity is, oh, don't do this because the guys you're going to be partnering with, they're all about it for the money. They're going to flip this thing over in five years and you guys are going to be stuck with nothing. So so walk us through those fears that that really aren't there and make us feel more comfortable. So, you know, I, I haven't had a flip and I, it hasn't been five years, so I can't promise you the future, but I, I don't think that's the case. I mean, the, the idea is to enlarge and to get better and stronger. But the doctors, you know, we sit on the board of the company and whoever we decide to repartner with the next time, gosh, 
no one's going to want to partner with a bunch of doctors who don't want to partner with them. So not only do I have a say in who my next partner is, but they're going to want someone who's motivated to work with them, right? So it's sort of a, you know, look, we're unlike a widget factory where, you know, you can be easily replaced. This is human capital here. And the human capital is first the patients, right? But it's secondarily the team of surgeons who treats those patients. So it's, it's not necessarily a sort of uh, an easily replaceable thing. Scott, it's all about choosing the right partner, right? You know, 50% of orthopedic surgeons change their practice within their first two or three years. Uh, said differently, the 50% who choose wisely maybe don't have to do that. So it's about picking the right, the right people to, uh, to align yourself with. Yeah, all great points. Thank you very much, Paul. So one of the other things that, that we also share in common is that we're both in private practice. Uh, I don't think you have an academic uh, affiliation. If you do, you should tell us. But, but uh, both of us have, have, have figured out a way to maintain private practice, but still be relevant uh, at the national, international level. Uh, both you more so for research. I've done a little bit uh, more research now recently, but it's really been more about education and passing on the things that we've learned uh, and being able to educate others. So where, where does that come from for you and how did you develop that process? It's probably some deep-seated insecurity uh, <laughs> that, that drives me to want to continue to do more and, and push myself. And look, I was a college wrestler, and, and my job was my job back then was to work hard, push hard, and just be better every day, whatever I could do. So I took this job, and what I didn't want to be, I didn't want to be the same surgeon that I left fellowship as 20 years later, which is you know coming up on pretty soon. My mentors, uh, who are your mentors, just the same, Neil. Alatrash and Jim Taboni, they pressed me to be, you know, as good as I could be at every given moment. And it just, it's embedded in me to, to continue to challenge myself. As far as the research goes, I don't really do research just for the sake of a publication. I would, we all face clinical problems. I think back to one of my early uh, papers on, on re-examining the triceps, you know, that tendon in the back of your arm. And why would I ever write a, an article on the triceps footprint? Well, I saw this college lacrosse player and he had a previous triceps repair, and it didn't work, and I was going to revise it. So I called Neil Elitrash up, and he says, well, Paul, you go to the lab and dissect out the triceps and look at what the footprint is and then recreate that. And, and all of a sudden, I was like, oh, my gosh, I did that. It made sense. And then I needed to go and, and sort of write up and research what we did. So it's been about finding real-world problems. That, that and, and if they're my real-world problems, they're going to be someone else's too. And that's why I think I've stayed, you know, someone, uh, I'm not relevant like somebody that's like, like Jay Keener or these really top-notch guys, but I've stayed a little relevant because I, I solve, you know, the, the, the problems that the regular guy faces. Well, don't sell yourself short, brother. You're doing an amazing job. You're, uh, you're a leader. You're out there. You're doing all the right things, and we really appreciate you. So before we end, do you want to give a quick plug on what you guys are doing with your ONS Foundation? So, yeah, the, the foundation that we started, uh, and, and it's now, gosh, 12 years old, it, it basically was it's a structure or a superstructure organization that, that allowed me to do research, to have students to help me execute my research, and to have funds so that we could figure these things out because I wasn't going to necessarily just go to, go to industry to solve all my problems. So this foundation has gone after uh, opiate use and opiate addiction. It's gone after uh, ACL prevention we we sort of wrote some neat studies on on infection prevention in the shoulder so it really has been something i copied from curlin job uh when i was there to create a research arm of of our practice um and and i'm lucky that my partner a woman named vicky tannenbaum was able to help me get this off the ground and and really continue to fly with it 
Yeah, that's great stuff. You know, Paul, we can't thank you enough. You know, you are my opioid sparing Curlin Job fellow, brother of another mother. It's been it's been a real pleasure to have you on. We think we re- really appreciate all the energy that you're putting in to educate and change the paradigm. Uh, it's really been a pleasure having you on. Scott, thank you so much. I look forward to seeing you in person soon. Like on the train in Atlanta when we basically <laughs> ran into that oh was the God. craziest story, right? I oh, mean, I look on thing. your back and it says, or I, I look at, I, I didn't see you first, actually. I, I, this is a good story. I see ortho laser. I'm like, ortho laser in Atlanta? And I start looking, I look up, and then there's the wig. And I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> it's not just the laser, it's the laser person himself. Uh, and it was like it was, we were literally like on a train in the Atlanta airport. The, the odds of us being able to walk into the same train uh, uh, compartment and actually see each other is just incredibly remote. No, I disagree. There are no coincidences. That was yeah. some sort of karmic move by by the, the the people upstairs. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna get you offline and talk about ortho laser for some of your uh, private equity groups as well. But that's another All conversation. Right. All right. Well, look, speaking of which, I want to thank our sponsor, OrthoLaser Orthopedic Laser Centers. This is Dr. Scott Sigmund, hashtag follow the fro, host of the Ortho Show. Till next time.